Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of our Story Story Night family, where you hear bleepworthy stories recorded live on our unblushing theme, Good Witch, Bad Witch. This episode highlights our curated stories. We need your support. Text the code STORYPOD to 44321. This summer, we are following the yellow brick road with tales told live, without notes or inhibitions, in the walled yard of the old Idaho Penitentiary. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. We're exploring stories of misplaced judgment from our featured storytellers, Leslie Bing, Salome Mwangi, and Amos Rothstein. There's no place like late night. There's no place like late night. Leslie Bing. So we all remember Glenda's first words to Dorothy. Are you a good witch or are you a bad witch? This is something I've pondered a lot in my life. Am I a good witch or am I a bad witch? And there's no other story that accumulates this idea for me better than my relationship with a girl named Julie. So Julie and I met 16 years ago. It's, we live in Austin, Texas, and we're both going to school to learn to become sign language interpreters. And I notice her, the first class that I walk into, she has bright red hair and a bubbly personality. We become fast friends. We sit by each other at every class. We start hanging out in the lunchroom during our breaks. I start giving her rides home. This leads to us going out and eating copious amounts of Mexican food together and then drunken nights in her apartment singing to Journey or Britney Spears from the top of our lungs with her roommate. So it was a great friendship. It happened quickly and it was a lot of fun. So Julie liked this guy named Chris. She didn't like, she was in love with this guy named Chris and he was like the boy next door for her. They met each other like in the eighth grade and she moved to his neighborhood and she was in love with him, just batshit crazy in love with this guy. They would make out from time to time, and what the roommate and I noticed to be the pattern was that Chris would have a girlfriend, break up with a girlfriend, make out with Julie, and then have a new girlfriend that wasn't Julie. But Julie was like, no, 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 eventually he'll want me. We were all very skeptical. So I didn't have a good impression of Chris, and when I met him for the first time, neither one of us left with a good impression of the other. It was at a party for Julie's birthday, and I remember leaving and thinking, like, that guy? That's who she's in love with? Like, the friend he brought with him was way hotter. (sighs) Well, then let's fast forward to July 2008, and I have decided to dip my toes into the pool that is stand-up comedy. And Julie invites Chris and his friends to come along for the first show. I think, great, I have no problem with this. More people to laugh at my hilarity, okay? This is fantastic. Then after the show, we're all in the parking lot, hanging out, talking, and somehow Chris and I end up in a one-on-one conversation. I don't remember how or what we were even talking about. My guess is he was telling me how funny and brave I am. (laughs) But we end up talking, and all these cliches are true. Like, the world melted around us, and it was just him and me. There were fireworks going off. It was all those things were true. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? Chris, this guy? But the chemistry was undeniable and palpable, so much so that I remember looking over at Julie and thinking, oh, fuck, this can't be good. It wasn't. 
So a week later, we all went out to karaoke. And Chris and I are very flirty with each other to the point where Julie's starting to notice and Julie is not a happy camper by what she sees. On the drive home that night, Chris and I were not the designated drivers. We're drunk in the back seat. And he leans over and whispers to me in my ear something that he will deny until his dying breath that he ever said to me, but I know he said it. He whispered in my ear, I'm so enchanted by you. I'd probably deny it too. <laughs> Let's be real. But I got it. I was like, I've known this guy like a week and he's completely consuming my life. We exchanged numbers that night. We start texting, added him on Facebook, put him in my MySpace top eight. I don't know, what did we do in 2008? I don't even remember. So we're chatting. We become, you know, pretty constant texters with each other and I have to go out of town for a trip. And while I'm on this trip, Chris and I are texting all the time, every day. I uh, charm him with my use of properly using a semicolon. He's going to school to be an English teacher. Know your audience, people. <laughs> so we're texting all the time, and then one night, Julie texts me and says, hey, I invited Chris over to come watch the opening ceremony of the Olympics with me. So I get a little, a little pang of jealousy, I'm not gonna lie, but what am I to say? No, you can't have this guy over that you've known for 10 years. So they hang out, I go on with my vacation, all's right with the world until the next morning when I get the text from Julie. Hey, do you know where I can buy plan B? <laughs> First of all, bitch, Google that shit, okay? <laughs> like literally, you have a computer, you walk over to the computer, you type in, where do I find plan B, Austin, Texas? Bam, I don't need to be a part of this conversation. But I see what you're doing. You're marking your territory, and I respect that. <laughs> so I decide I have two options. One, I bow out gracefully. I walk away. I don't need to be a part of this messy love triangle, right? That is what a good friend would do. Or two, I text Chris, Chris knowing he is hanging out with Julie and see if he texts me back while hanging out with Julie. <laughs> and then we go from there. <laughs> Needless to say, both Julie and I took plan B that day. <laughs> so I text him. Something witty and charming, I'm sure. And he immediately texts me back and I think, Meh, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm gonna keep moving forward with this relationship. Bad witch, bad, bad, bad witch. So a week later, I come home to Texas and we go out on our first date the night I get home. And I would love to tell you I wasn't some backstabbing bitch who broke the girl code that night, but I would be lying. So I broke the girl code all night long that night, in fact. And uh, we decided we would start seeing each other pretty quickly. Uh, we were both smitten kittens, it was bound to happen. But we decide in a fateful decision that we're not gonna tell Julie that we've started to date. So this goes on for about a month and a half, two months, and then Chris decides, no, I'm gonna make the phone call and I'm gonna tell Julie everything. I feel like this is a good point in the story to tell you. I know you're imagining Julie in your mind right now and you see this like vibrant, redhead, bubbly personality girl, that's great. 
You've probably seen her walking around enjoying life. That's great. Just go ahead and put her in a wheelchair. Because <laughs> I stole a guy from my best friend in a wheelchair. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Oh, my God, what a bitch. She's in a wheelchair? No, this just means I don't discriminate, okay? I'll fuck over any of my friends. I don't even care. So Chris tells Julie everything. There's tears. There's, I get angry messages from her and her roommate. And I think, well, this friendship is over. And let me tell you how few fucks I give at this point. Because I'm falling in love. So Julie eventually tells us, no, I still want to be your friend. Chris and I are both flabbergasted by this. We thought for sure it was over, done with. She would never want to talk to us again. But slowly, we started coming back around to the idea of being friends again, to the point where the next year, she invites Chris and I out on a double date. I show up to the double date, and it's a guy that I fucked two years prior. (laughs) Okay, I see you, Julie, I see you. So Chris and I continue dating, and we have a very surface-level friendship with Julie. In 2012, we get married. And we go off and see the world together. In fact, if I could describe to you like the first three years of our marriage, it would be like Aladdin with Jasmine on the magic carpet. (laughs) I can show you the world. That was us. I swam in a cave in Oman. I hiked the mountains of Thailand. I saw Christmas markets in Austria. He showed me the world. And for three years, it was magic. And then one really horrible, shitty year, and we got divorced (laughs) after four years to get married. So nothing makes you more introspective than a divorce, right? You're really looking inward. What happened? What went wrong? So I start thinking about Julie and how I'd been this bad witch to her. And I wanted to reach out to her, but I didn't know what to say because I justified these decisions for so long. Look at this. Look at this man of my dreams. It's totally fine that I fucked my friend over. Look at what I have. Look at the life we're building together. It's fine. But now I had nothing to show for it. So I reached out to Julie, and I profusely apologized and laid my heart out on the line and expected her to be like, you know what, you dumb bitch, maybe you don't marry the guy who fucks you a week after he fucked me. Just an idea. That's what she should have said to me. That's what she could have said to me. But instead, she just sent three words to me. I forgive you. That dumb bitch. I was ready to die a martyr, okay? And then she's like, no, 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 you can be the good witch too. So all this to say, don't fuck over your friends. It usually doesn't end well, but if you are going to, I hope you fuck over a Julie who's a good witch and will tell you that she forgives you. Thank you very much. Uh, Salome Mwangi. Forgive me. It's hard to pay attention when you're being roasted back there. (laughs) Okay. So I have this plan, and I'm going to unfold it for you because it's an amazing plan. I know that it's going to work out exactly as I have planned it. My plan, my time, my dime, my way. 
So let's go back to 1993. Did I just date myself? <laughs> Naima and I gel as soon as we meet. We're both new to this uh, department in the bank where we're working in Nairobi, Kenya. We're like, click, and we're off. We couldn't be more different, even though there were similarities. She was a firstborn to three younger brothers. I was the firstborn to one brother and three sisters. She was laid back. And some of the things that used to set me on my teeth on edge, she was like, oh, pooey, there's nothing. I don't understand why you're going to eat me your panties all up in a wad. <laughs> The other thing was, we couldn't have been more different. She was lighter skinned than I was. She was taller than I was, and she was more voluptuous. I, on the other hand, will let you fill in the blanks. <laughs> and as we continued working, we were actually traveling throughout, throughout Kenya, and we continued keeping in touch, deepening our relationship as we went along. We had the kind of relationship that makes other girlfriends jealous because of what we had. Wasp. <laughs> Not the relationship. <laughs> so then it gets to the part where we're learning. We have people coming in to work with us from Zimbabwe. And, and, and Neema and I are like, hey, guess what? Let's show them what Nairobi City has to offer in a nightlife. And needless to say, we painted the town red. And then there was the other guys from the UK who came in also working with us. Hey, hey, hey. Here we go. And so we showed them what the rest of Kenya had to offer. And this is after hours, over the weekends and during the holidays. They were such meaningful relationships that to this day, I'm still in touch with many of those people. Then there's a time when Naima decides, do you want to watch a movie in the middle of the day? And we walk into a movie theater, pay for the tickets, popcorn and all. And after the movie was done, we walked out and joined the thrones of people going home like we had just come from work. And she whispered over to me, shh, I won't tell if you don't. I was like, cool beans, cool beans. She knew some of my secrets. I knew some of hers. And life was really a blast for us as we were on this journey of ours. Then Naima became with child. And unfortunately, her relationship with a baby daddy disintegrated. And this plunged her into a deep depression. And I didn't know what to do. I was wringing my hands, trying to figure out how to help her, how to get her out of this thing, and I couldn't. So we just waded through this season of her life until the baby was born. And you guys know, a baby changes everything. It doesn't matter what it is that you've gone through. There's the joys, there's the adventure. They keep you on your toes, they keep you on your knees. And life was pretty okay. You know, we got on a different track, but
but we continued. The projects that we were working on kind of came to a close with the Y2K excitement <laughs> dying down. <laughs> and we kind of went our separate ways. Didn't continue keeping in touch as often as we had before. But you know, we checked on each other every once in a while. But there was this one thing that had bothered me for a really long time. It was like, you know that lone marble that rolls around your head, cannot find a place to dock? It was one of those kind of things. And I wondered about this guy. I kind of liked him. And uh, he kind of liked me. But he'd be hot and then cold and then hot again. And I'm thinking, make up your mind. And on one of those times we came back together, he would be asking me questions about places I'd been, people I'd been with, things I had done. Then it dawned on me. Neymar had been spilling the beans. Oh gosh, was I mad. I was so pissed off. I don't know what hurt more. The betrayal of my best friend or the loss of my Mr. Kinda Like You. Here's what I decided. I'm pissed off. I'm locking that door. I'm throwing away the key, and you deal with it. Oh my goodness, Neymar tried to reach out to me, tried to explain what it was. No, it's not the way you think it was. Let me tell you, I was hearing none of it. Please forgive me. That isn't what, I don't care. I really didn't care. So then I started hearing stories that she wasn't doing very well. I didn't care. I heard that she had decided to go to the UK, follow some economic opportunities because she was the sole breadwinner. Didn't care. She wrote me an email. Back in those days, finding somebody's email isn't as easy as it is today. So she found my email and she sent me an email. And the one that she actually sent me several, the one that stuck with me is the one where she asked me, so why have you made yourself the judge, the jury, and the jailer? And I thought, ooh, she's mad. <laughs> Didn't change anything with me. 2004, I relocate to the US. I pack up my tattered flag of pride with me, and I came here with it. Neymar continued trying to reach out and to explain to me. I blocked her. I heard that she was back in Kenya didn't matter to me. I heard that her mother wasn't feeling well. I broke my heart, but I never let her show. Never let it show. Never let her know. I heard that she wasn't feeling well and she was in and out of the hospital. Silence. And then I heard that she had a baby. And I thought, oh, a baby changes everything. So you see, I have this plan of how we're going to do this thing on my time, on my dime, in my way. And I'm in the middle of buying an air ticket because I want to go back. And I want to show Naima, you know what? I changed. I grew up. 
I failed out in places I hadn't failed out before. I almost look like you now. And I'm going to tell her how much I understand the pain of raising a child on your own as a single parent. And I'm going to tell her, look at my own child. I understand the pain of being abandoned by a baby daddy. I'm going to look for her. I'm going to surprise her. Everybody has been told I'm going, but please don't tell anybody else. And everything is lined up as it should be. I'm looking forward to embracing her and patching things up and catching up on each other and tell me what happened and saying, I'm so sorry about your mom's failing health. Only the thing is, Neema died in 2009, in March of 2009. And I never got to say any of the things that I wanted to say. I wanted to go there with my pride folded up and offer forgiveness on a platter. I never got to do that. There was this heaviness in my spirit at that time. It was like a cloak that wrapped itself around my heart and I couldn't shake it off and neither could I shake off the sadness that followed it. When I look back, I realize that was Nema bidding me goodbye. That was Nema telling me she was cool. I cannot tell you how many times I have asked her to forgive me in my heart. I cannot tell you how many times I told her name, I forgive you, over and over again. I cannot tell you how many times I've replayed the opportunities that I missed out, that I would have taken advantage of. And even today as I think back, I think of her name, Naima, and I realize she forgave me. She forgave me a long time ago. Because you see, her name Naima means grace in Kiswahili. Thank you. Please welcome Amos Rothstein. Thank you. My name is Amos Rothstein. Um, I am a comic. Uh, locally, I am a food critic for The Statesman, and tonight I'm a storyteller, and I'm very nervous because most of the things I'm about to tell you are a lot less funny than what I usually like to say into a microphone, a lot more personal. I'd be remiss not to thank the lovely Beth Norton, who's been calming me down all night, and Jody for creating all of this. Can we give them a round of applause? Seriously. Um, they've not only created art for all of us to see, but they've done a service and community service and bringing all of us here together to hear each other's stories, understand our neighbors better, and hopefully relate a little bit to each other more, which I think we could all use a little more of lately. So, um, I was flattered to be asked uh, to do this at all. I was thinking about all of the different topics this summer and which might make most sense. I was thinking about all the funny quips that I could 
tell you in my story, all the spicy little details I could give you to get that audible gasp from you, the final twist of my tail right before a thunderous applause <laughs> as I leave this chunk of cement. My m manager, who I don't have, would call about a book deal that's not on the table and say, the reviews are in, we love you, the book's yours. So I thought misplaced judgments was a very good place to go with that, especially given my own. Um, I recently turned 31. <laughs> June 29th, I turned 31. I know, gross, boo. 10 years ago, that was ancient to me. I spent a lot of time on 31 thinking about what 21-year-old me would have thought about where I am now. 21-year-old me had a very grand vision for where I would be now. Uh, very hard-lined, pun intended, straight and narrow. And I would be with a woman who I met in a very exciting way. She'd be eccentric. We'd have that you know, playful competitiveness in our careers that were meteorically rising. People would be in awe of our humor and our unique love for one another. And travel and adventure would be a constant. Not ever thinking about money, but that would be our life. And we'd love to be asked about how we met. That really annoying way that couples love to fucking be asked about how they met. Be that ping pong back and forth that's like puke worthy where one person chimes in about an endearing but embarrassing story of the other and then another one does the same thing and another one does the same thing and that's what I thought what love was at 21. Oh, it's annoying. But I drew a very hard line of what I thought I needed to be for success and to earn the respect that I thought I needed to respect myself and for what I thought my career and my friendships and all these things look like in a very secure way. Now that I'm 31, it's been quite a different tale. I recently got passed up for a job I thought would be life-changing after four months of interviewing. I lost my fourth person who I've been friends with to taking their own life this year, which went from, this is depressing, to what the fuck is going on very quickly lost my childhood dog recently, and for May, June, and part of July was couch surfing and house sitting because I broke up with my recently also out of the closet bisexual Midwestern ex-evangelical Christian musician, sweet but aloof ex-boyfriend who I was living with and thought it'd be a good idea to live with. And uh, the reality hit me very hard after that. Um, it was a square one I didn't know I could be in, in a world I didn't know I could live in. And um, the hard lines that I had drawn as a young person uh, were very different. I set up this life that would be grueling. It would be mostly, in my mind, practical with a little bit of pleasure and it would be a lot of hard work to rise in the career which I was in my entire adult life, which was Republican politics. And, um, which is very calming. Uh, and has gone on a very linear path in the last 10 years. So I told myself, 
I would do this this line I'd made for myself. I would leave little room for diverting and little room for burnout and little room for you know, saying no to the grueling jobs and little room to explore anything sexual or different about myself that I thought I might have because I needed to get to be in the room where decisions were made. That's what my idea of success would be. And I'd meet that person, maybe she was a Democrat, on the other side, we'd have this Carville-Matlin relationship. But we'd both get there together and we'd both, you know, like step on the toxic bullshit that we have to deal with to rise the escalator to not only be in the room, but to be the names that everyone associated with making things happen. That was my idea of love uh, and hard work and a life that should be good. So I really based it off of the 1990s song by Reba McIntyre, Fancy. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard, have any of you heard Fancy? It's a really good song. It's a bit taboo. Fancy's mom doesn't have a lot of cashola. So she pimps Fancy out and tricks her out and makes her into a nice little hooker and makes sure she treats the rich and the powerful real well so they treat her real well in return. And there's a line in Fancy that says, if you be nice to the gentleman, Fancy, they'll be nice to you. And I really base my idea of getting ahead in my career on that line from Fancy. I wasn't giving out hand jobs like Fancy was, at least yet. But I was giving off hot coffee and hot copies to any shitty boss that asked. I wasn't spending romantic nights with congressmen. I was working grueling nights, looking up opposition research for them and cutting negative TV ads in dingy parts of the Republican National Committee at all hours of the night for crappy wage. But for the dream that one day... I would be thanked and seen in jobs that were thankless and made you feel invisible. And so I worked and I worked and I worked. And I had a very different uh, outcome than that. Uh, I decided to move. I decided to go all over the world 10 years in Seattle and DC and LA and Providence, Rhode Island before I came back to Idaho where I was at 21 to have a relationship I never expected which was lovely to be able to experience this part of me with someone who was also experiencing it for the first time and to feel this openness and to feel this connection that I never really thought I could feel in also maintaining this career which didn't really allow a lot of room for that um, but figuring it all out and it took me traveling kind of all over the world to get back to Idaho to live this life I had not ever planned for the last time I was in this state. And it took my Midwestern boyfriend literally not being in Kansas anymore to be here and experience that. But we experienced it. And I felt like at 21 I was the terrible, awful witch putting myself on a very long, arduous conveyor belt to be able to be the good witch I hope I could be at one point in time. Um, by all means necessary. And I thought a lot at my 31st birthday about sort of the conversation I would have with myself um, at 21 now. And it didn't really look like a conversation that really looked like 
younger me reading a list of judgments and the same emphaticism as someone from Law and Order reading to someone on a witness stand. So let me get this straight, younger me would say. So you're gay and you've been homeless for a while and you just got dumped by your dude and you live with your cat. That's what I'm, that's what I'm hearing. Is that correct? Well, I'd say. I'm actually bisexual, which I know we both thought was the wimpy way of being gay without actually committing to being gay, but it's real, it's a thing, I like women, sometimes they like me, not a whole lot, no more men like me, it's a long story. Particularly larger Hispanic dudes, that's a weird thing, but... But I did live with this guy, and it was a lovely time. We broke up for very straight reasons that you still deal with. Uh, you know, we weren't hearing each other's needs. The needs we were hearing weren't being met, and we uh, were afraid to talk about needs, and so we broke up in the end the gayest way possible, hugging and crying, four sessions of therapy, and an exchange of Benet Brown books on the way out the door. <laughs> Betty Ford, the cat, is the best thing that's ever happened to you. She's traveled 20 states with you in the car... She loves you, and you need her. As far as the house goes, you bought one. You're an idiot. You rented out all the rooms, moved into this guy. Uh, the rooms were not available, so you had to couch her for a few months until you get it back into your own house you bought. But I bought you a fucking house. You're welcome. I'm grateful. So you didn't make it in Republican politics. We worked so hard. We kissed a lot of ass. We worked a lot of grueling hours and shitty jobs. To make it, what the fuck happened? Well, I didn't fuck that up. It fucked me up. And I had to get out. We put in the hours. There was days that we'd be in the room together in the cubicle saying goodnight to everyone as the sun was going down, only to be in the same clothes hours later as the sun was coming up and everyone was coming back into work and you never left. You were making those ads and you hid in bushes with cameras to chase congressmen. <laughs> to ask them about their alleged affairs down the street to make a negative TV ad. You put in the work. You had bosses that went to jail or you got so socially canceled it almost would have been better if they went to jail. Seemed less harsh. Um, don't worry, you're not a Democrat. Don't worry. But you're not what you used to be. After the guy from The Apprentice became president, you became the R word. And younger me would be like, oh my God, are we retarded? And I would say No. Honestly, in our circles, it's socially worse. You're a rhino now. Oh, my God. Well, you didn't change. Things changed and shit happened, but you worked, you worked really hard. Okay. And now you're in Idaho. Life's a little easier. You're trying to help good people. You're figuring out what that looks like. It's a little less exciting. Sometimes you're bored, but you figure it out. It's okay. We figure it out. Okay. So what about that respect? The respect I needed to feel the respect I thought I deserved. And all the people, my friends, my family, all the people's ring I kissed, what do they think of me? Well, uh, you've been asking the wrong question. I realized it. It was never about what all these other people thought of you. You never asked, do I respect what I'm doing or myself or am I enjoying what I'm doing? Or the people around me, do I respect them? And 
once you asked that and I started asking that, it was a very different ball game. And you started realizing that the love of friends that just want you to be happy is really the best feeling and to be able to love them is very lucky and a very good feeling too. But there is only one thing that feels better and that is seeing your recently ex-boyfriend on a date with a guy who looks super bored and looks not only like you, but an uglier version of you. And pettier younger me would emphatically agree with that. Still a little pissed that I'm kind of gay, but agreeing. And I'd cut it off. 31-year-old me would cut it off. It'd be done with the trial, uh, wondering where I need to be and where I need to go, and all these different things um, that I couldn't answer. I've realized that really in the last few years, the only one whose judgment I really needed was Betty Ford's, and honestly, she's the only pussy I've really tried to impress in the last two years. And I got there. So, to quote a good witch, B'nai Brown. It can be very hard to own your story, but it can be far more exhausting to always be running from it. So, I'm so honored that you all are here to hear a little bit about my story, where I've been. I have no idea where I'm going, but I can't wait to find out who he is. I'm excited to meet him. I hope he's doing well. And... I hope you all are doing well in your future, too. So thank you so much, Amos Rothstein. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Our theme song was composed by Ned Evitt. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Please rate and review this podcast to help other story lovers find it too. Thanks to guest host Allison Meyer and musical guest Che. Support this podcast by texting StoryPod to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. 